Hi, everyone, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 24 of the 2018-2019 curling season. This week, we welcome Matt Dunstone, fresh off his team's big win in the third leg of the Curling World Cup. We recap the Ontario men's and women's provincial playdowns with Danielle Inglis, who was in Elmira as an analyst for streaming coverage of the event. We chat with Kate Flannery and Andrew Sapiro, who skipped their teams to victory at the recent U.S. Junior Championships. And our feature interview this week is with Catherine Henderson, the CEO of Curling Canada, who joined me for our yearly conversation on some of the bigger issues impacting the sport of curling in Canada. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedice, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedice Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Ashton's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Ashton Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Ashton's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.ashram.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks Recap of Week 24, the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. The third leg of the 2018-2019 Curling World Cup took place in Jönköping, Sweden last week, with Canadian teams coming home with two of the three titles. The team of Kadriana Sahaidak and Colton Lott won their first major title as a team after losing in the final of both the 2018 Canadian Championships and the 2018 Canadians Mixed Doubles event. The young Canadian duo defeated the Norwegian team of Skazlin and Ulzrud 7-6 in the final. Team Robinson of Canada wasn't as lucky in the women's event as the final was a battle between the home country favorites, Team Hasselberg, and Minji Kim's team from Korea. The Koreans caused the surprise of the event by defeating the reigning Olympic champions by a score of 6-4 in the final. In the men's final, it was Team Dunstone of Canada defeating the home country favorites, Team Adina of Sweden, 5-4 in the final. Matt Dunstone joined from the hack to discuss his team's big win in Sweden. So Matt, uh, congratulations on your team's uh, big win in Sweden. Obviously a solid week for you in, in Sweden uh, to come away with that World Cup title. Tell me about your week and what the keys were to your team's success. Yeah, it, uh, I would have said uh, it was probably our team's best performance uh, 
head to toe in, in an event this season. Uh, pretty much every single game we, we played and had had control of for the most part. Um, so especially leading into provincials, it's kind of the exact kind of performance we wanted to put on. And and uh, you know, it, uh, when you win events like this, I mean, you can't do it without some breaks along the way as well. So so we were lucky enough to to get those and then capitalize on those and uh, upset the hometown team. We often hear European players talk about having to play in front of large, sometimes loud Canadian curling crowds. And I'm wondering what it was like to play against Nicholas Adin and his team in front of a partisan Swedish curling crowd. Yeah, very cool. I mean, very, very different, obviously, because usually it's the other way around. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're pr- the Swedish uh, people are pretty passionate about their curling and, and pretty passionate about uh, Nick Dean and, and Hasselberg's team as well. So so they get nothing but support from their teams there. And, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, actually, to, to get a taste of, of what those two teams in particular get to taste every time they come to Canada. And did you change your strategy at all versus it Dean in the final to try and get the crowd out of it, or did you simply stick to what had worked for you all week? No, I didn't worry about that. Just kind of stuck stuck with what we wanted to do. We knew how well we were playing uh, heading into that game, so so we didn't want to change a whole lot going into it. Uh, you know, just uh, go and see what can happen. I mean, playing one of the best teams in the world like Nick, uh, you just got to go out and play your game and, and hope uh, they're not as sharp, and that's pretty much a lot of the times the only way you can beat a team like that. Some folks have wondered out loud about why a team would go to a World Cup event in Sweden across the ocean and get back home just a few days before provincials. Now, I'm sure your team had that discussion. How did you go about justifying going to another continent to play an event the week prior to playdowns when most teams prefer to keep that week open for practice and rest? Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's definitely something we had to talk about. Uh, we kind of thought long and hard before before we made that, that decision to do so, but I mean... Uh, I mean, these events are only, they only come around three times every season, and, and you never know when you're going to get back to one of them, right? So it's, anytime you get the chance to, to represent Canada at a, at a world-class event, uh, like one with the World Cup, with the cash prize and, and the Beijing prize as well, I mean, something very difficult to pass up, and, and it's just kind of kind of the gamble we took heading into this week, and and based on uh, how things at the World Cup had gone that week, I mean, uh, I think we're, we're flowing with even more confidence uh, than we would if we hadn't gone. Uh, heading into the provincials here. So it's tough to say how it'll work out uh, come, come provincial time, but I think between between the four of us right now, I think we're, we're absolutely ecstatic event and, and more confident uh, as a team uh, right now more than ever. Your team has gone on a couple of pretty long trips uh, so far this season. Uh, you went to a World Curling Tour event in China earlier and now in Sweden for the World Cup event. How have those trips helped you grow as a team, especially since you're in your first season together? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's been, I think, beyond more hectic year than than any of the four of us could ever imagine. Uh, I mean, uh, to to do two long trips like that, I don't think any of us saw that uh, coming when this team was formed. So, I mean, it's it's definitely difficult all the time on the road. And and I mean, we the thing about that is we we've, we've had so much fun together off the ice. I mean, we we play we play a ton of cards. Uh, we're all like super competitive guys. So. So those games get pretty heated, and, and, and we find things to do around. I, I basically, anything we do together as a team, we just find a way to make it competitive amongst the four of us, and it makes it a lot of fun. Um, and, and, you know, it's, uh, we, we've definitely grown as a team because of those, um, because it's, I mean, it's, it's never easy going, going to a foreign country at all. I mean, you're always going to have your, your hardships. It's always going to be di- different than, than what life is like at home. So, I mean, the four of us dealing with all that on our own, it's definitely helped us grow, for sure. 
And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Matt, uh, your team is off to provincials this week. What are going to be the keys uh, for your team to have success at playdowns and to earn your way to the briar? Yeah, I think number one would be just making sure we're rested up, getting maximum amount of sleep. I mean, uh, I think between the four of us, we're feeling a lot better than we thought we would coming back right now. Um, I'll be honest, right now I'm ready for a nap, but um, I think just making sure we're rested up and, and just uh, sticking with uh, how we played last week. I mean, you just got to keep the pedal down, find that motivation to, to keep putting that extra extra little bit of layer on and and probably uh, winning this last event here has even put more of a target on us now. Uh, heading into into the provincials more than more than we already have one going in. So um, any team we play uh, is going to give us their, their absolute best game of the week, and we know that, so it's not going to be easy by any means. So uh, we just got to go out and then keep the pedal down. It was also a busy weekend for provincial playdowns, and Northern Ontario will be represented by familiar teams at both the Scotties and the Briar this season. Chris McCarville defeated Jenna Eng 8-7 in the women's final to earn a 7th trip to the Scotties, while Brad Jacobs will return to the Briar for an 11th time after defeating Tanner Horgan 7-5 in the men's final. Team Jacobs will be looking for a second Briar title. In British Columbia, Sarah Work defeated Corinne Brown 7-4 in the women's final to qualify for her first Scotties, while Jim Cotter defeated Jason Montgomery 9-4 in the men's final. Cotter will lead an experienced side at the Briar and Brandon with a total of 30 Briar appearances among the four players on his team. In a Newfoundland and Labrador tankard, Andrew Simons defeated Rick Rousel 5-0 in the final to reach the Briar four years after winning the Travelers Curling Club Championships. And finally, Team Homan is headed to Scotty's number 6 following a 6-4 win over Team Tippin in the Ontario Scotty's final. In the men's tankard final, Scott McDonald and his team defeated the defending champ John Epping and his new lineup 8-2 in the final to earn their first trip to the Briar. Danielle Inglis, who covered the men's and women's Ontario playdowns for Title Sports Live, joined from the hack to recap both the Ontario Scotty's and the Ontario Tankard. Danielle, let's start with the women's event at the Ontario Provincial Playdowns. Uh, certainly Team Homan were the overwhelming favourites heading into Elmira. And to be fair, they did have to grind out a few wins during the week. So it's not like they steamrolled everyone, but what was it about their game last week that ultimately separated them from the field? Well, anytime that Team Homan is going to be on arena ice, they, they have that advantage, I would say, over the rest of the field just because they spend the majority of their season playing on arena ice, so they know a bit more of what to expect, how it will react, and and uh, so really they're prepared for it. They they were, like you said, they didn't just steamroll through the field, but they had to grind some of those out. But they, they have the experience behind them, and that's something that uh, they have over the entire field. They know how to grind out a win. They know how to dominate and put on a, a strong performance. They just never let their foot off the pedal, no matter who they're playing. Um, I don't think there are any free spaces on the bingo card out there by any means, um, but even when they were having a dominant game, they just continued to put on the pressure. And really, there's no doubt in anybody's minds that they're true champions. The first half of the provincial final against Team Tippin started a little slowly for both teams, with Homan taking a 3-1 lead into the fifth end break. Was there a key point in the game where you sensed that Team Homan started to take control of the game, or did you feel like they were in control throughout, even though the score may not have been representative of that? I felt they did have control of that game, to be quite honest. Uh, just the way they present themselves on the ice. Uh, the first end was a little bit dicey. Rachel was facing, I think it was three or four on her last one, but had an open hit for uh, the single point. Team Tiffin, I mean, kudos to them. They they put a ton of pressure on. 
Um, but you just know that against a team like Team Homan, you can't get down by even two or three. Um, I mean, there are those rare instances where it's, you might catch them on an off day and they they might let you back into the game, but didn't ever get the sense that that was going to happen during this game, to be quite honest. felt like Team Tippin played it a little bit more tentatively than they had to in order to play Team Homan and beat them, to be quite honest. I think you could get away with that if you're playing a, a different team who maybe didn't have their experience to back it, but... Uh, against Team Holman, I, really the only way you're going to do that is put some serious pressure on them um, and potentially force some misses. So it felt like for Team Holman they were in a, a pretty strong position all game. That's just the general sense I got of it. That's the tricky part against a team like Holman. You need to put pressure on them to have any hopes of winning, yet putting pressure on them typically means having a lot of rocks in play, but teams often shy away from that versus Holman because they're concerned that you know, with one miss, they could give up a four or a five ender. Well, that's exactly it. And that's what happened when Julie was calling a couple shots. She, a couple of them were because you could tell it was because she didn't want to give up a big end on them rather than playing a shot that, of course, was, was more risky. But given the circumstances, you might have had to play in order to win the game. So, yes, the game was close, but... To be honest, the way Team Homan was just throwing in their general demeanor out there, it didn't feel like uh, they were ever, ever in a huge amount of trouble. One of the teams that received some attention going into the Ontario Scotties was Team Harrison, in part because Jacqueline had had some success against Team Homan. However, despite being the second highest ranked team at Provincials, things just did not seem to go Team Harrison's way in Elmira in a bunch of their games. Was it just one of those weeks for Team Harrison? Yeah, I felt for them. They, the, their, the round robin score really didn't dictate how how well they were doing. They had a tough day mid midweek where um, they had a shot to win against Holly um, and a bit of a sweeping error at the end. Uh, the rock ground down caught the sweepers off guard and they dropped it short, so they went to an extra. Um, and then Holly took that in the extra, of course, having hammer. Um, then. They had, uh, again, a shot to beat Rachel, uh, not an easy one, a hit, and they would have won, had to catch a piece. They caught a piece of it, but not enough to tap it out, uh, went to an extra. And, I mean, anytime you're playing Rachel in an extra when they have hammer with that ticking power of Lisa's um, the peeling power with Joanne and Emma, you're always in trouble. So that day in particular was uh, was a crucial turning point for them um, and then the biggest the biggest game for them that ultimately knocked them out was the last round robin game against Tippin it was a do or die situation uh, with the winner going into the tiebreaker against Holly um, and they just did not have um, a strong of the game I wasn't watching all of it because that was in our feature sheet but from what I saw it looked like Team Tippin was really playing well and putting the pressure on Team Harrison. So, yeah, I, I absolutely, it was one of the shockers, I think people would say, but um, I think their final final record didn't fully reflect their, their play all week. Moving on to the Ontario men's tankard, I'm sure that uh, people that don't follow curling that closely were likely surprised this morning when they read that Team McDonald had won the Ontario tankard as opposed to Team Epping or Team Howard. We'll discuss the final in a moment, but I'm wondering if you can tell our audience about Team McDonald and the excellent level of play they seem to bring to Elmira, going undefeated for the week. 
oh, if you were there, you'd have no doubt that Team McDonald was going to win if they just kept up that. So it's no surprise to anyone who saw them play. That's for sure. They weren't handed any of those wins by any means. They worked hard for them. They played phenomenally all week. Uh, and, I mean, talk about a team who's peaking at the right time. That team is. They uh, they were in the two Grand Slams most recently, had good showings there as well, um, had a good season, of course. They're, I think they're now ranked, or at least before Provincials, they're ranked something like ninth or eighth in Ontario. So, or sorry, in uh, Canada. So they are, they're a team that not many people know, but they're a team that people should be on high alert for. They're, they're fun to watch. They have a bit of a, a different approach to the strategy right off the bat, but, and this is what makes them so strong, is that they, they are making the shots. They're not afraid to call the tough shots. So the shots that you see the top men's teams call with confidence, which for uh, for probably a lot of the viewers watching going, wow, what a what a shot to call, or I would never call that shot. It just seems so hard to make. Nope, they're calling it and making it with the best of them, and that's truly why they won this week. Um, I should clarify, too, when I say an interesting strategy, it's a good strategy, by the way. It's not interesting as in questionable, um, but it is something that I think catches a couple teams off guard off the bat, and uh yeah, using that tick power rate right from the beginning on Scott Chadwick Brocks and his ability to make them with such consistency uh, has really made a difference for that team. In the provincial final, the more experienced team typically has an advantage, at least in the early going. However, in the championship final at the Ontario Tankard this year, it was Scott McDonald in his first provincial final as a skip, taking an early 4 nothing lead over Team Epping and cruising to an 8-2 win. For those that couldn't watch the game, was it a case of Team McDonald playing lights out to start the game, or was Team Epping off to start the game in the championship final? Honestly, Team McDonald was just putting the pressure on right from the start. They um, they played like they had all week, which was exactly what they needed to do. Uh, I think it helps for them, too. They were coming in as the distinct underdog in that situation. I don't think anybody would argue that. Um, though, I think they've proven themselves enough to the point where I don't think as many people are going to be saying that. But, but they were just really, really solid throughout the entire game. They got bit of a miss out of John's team, and uh, and they just rolled with it. Um, I think, I think too, that's been one of their their keys to their success this past week is that they're they're not missing much. But whenever there's a, a missed shot or an opportunity, they come back right with a a made shot, and not just a made shot of a phenomenally made shot. I just want to take a quick second to discuss the ageless wonder, Glenn Howard, who made it to the playoffs at yet another tankard this season, but fell just short of reaching the final. Now, Team Howard's tankard seemed to come down to a four-ender they gave up to Team Epping in the eighth end of the semifinal. Otherwise, I think it's fair to say that it was a pretty good week for Glenn and his team. Oh, it, I love Glenn, and I love his love for the game. It's contagious. Um, I mean, if you're competing, regardless of what age you are, if you're able to compete at the top level, do it. Um, I, I think the people who are saying he's washed up or whatnot, that was especially going on a couple years ago. Um, I just, I just think they weren't, they weren't still looking at the bigger picture and where he was. Maybe their team was 
pretty much number one in the top three of, of the teams in the country at that point, and anything less was a disappointment. But they were still in the top 10, top 15, and, they're, and they continue to be a super strong team. And, the, it, yeah, you're right, that the four-ender that happened in the eighth end, it was just a series of very unfortunate events that started right from the lead rocks and continued on right through the skip rocks. Really, um, really, they, it was just, for Team Howard, it was the wrong side of the inch, the entire semifinal. That's how it could be defined. And But credit to Team Epping as well, especially in that eighth end. They put the pressure on big time. They were making the perfect shots to force Team Howard into some some pretty crazy circus shots in the end. And finally, Danielle, uh, Team Holman will obviously be one of, if not the clear favorites at the Scotties. Uh, when it comes to Team McDonald, if they bring their A game to Brandon Manitoba, do you believe they have a legit shot at playing deep into the second weekend at the Briar? I think if they show up in Brandon, we could definitely see them as a, a dark horse that slips into the playoffs, and purely because they're going to take people by surprise. Um, and people won't see what's coming uh, at them. Uh, that being said, the field there is so deep, and there's tons of talent. We're even, we don't even have the whole field there yet, um, but we know there's some heavy hitters that will be coming in too. So I don't see any reason why if they play to their very best like we saw there that they can't find themselves in the playoffs. <laughs> The 2019 U.S. Junior Championships recently took place in Duluth, Minnesota. Kate Flannery and her team of Leah Lavaro, Lexi Lanigan, and Rebecca Miles won a first Junior Nationals, defeating two-time reigning champion Anne-Marie Duberstein in the final. Kate joined from the hack to discuss her team's somewhat unexpected win and their upcoming trip to the World Juniors. Kate, you've had some time now to reflect on your team's win at the U.S. Junior Nationals. Uh, Has it sunk in that you are a United States Junior Curling Champion? You know, not really, and <laughs> to tell the truth, I don't know how long it would probably uh, take to sink in. Probably when we finally get to Worlds, it will finally uh, hit me, but it wasn't really something we uh, were completely sure was going to happen this year, so it was uh, it was really awesome, and yeah, it <laughs> hasn't really quite hit us. Kate, I like asking this following question uh, to curlers after they've won their first national championship. Tell me about that final shot in the final and the moment you realized that you had won a national junior championship. So my last shot was a draw, and uh, actually my two previous uh, draws, from the one from the ninth and the, my first from the tenth, were actually uh, quite a bit heavy. So <laughs> uh, getting in the hack for uh, my uh, final draw was a little bit nerve-wracking. I kind of had to take an extra deep breath and push the thought out that this was to, uh, you know, win the ch- national championship. So. Uh, it was a little uh, nerve-wracking. I mean, I've been in high-pressure shots before, but nothing that big. Uh, and then, you know, halfway down the ice, uh, when I did deliver my last draw, my uh, teammate Lexi was saying, uh, it's good. So that was <laughs> definitely nice to hear from her. And there's a lot of good hugs and celebrations. And, yeah, it was it was a great moment. So something I'll definitely always, always cherish. So. In the final at Nationals, you played versus Henry Duberstein, who had been on the winning team at the last two U.S. Junior Nationals. You mentioned earlier that your team wasn't really expecting to win Junior Nationals this year. Did the fact that your opponent was a favorite heading into the final, combined with the fact that you had already exceeded your own expectations at the Junior Nationals, allow your team to play a little bit more relaxed in the final, like you had nothing to lose? We'd lost uh, the couple of, 
like two, three times uh, previously. And so I think after going through those defeats, it really um, kind of mentally prepared us for, you know, you can't really go out there expecting anything because it's, it's curling and you really never know it's uh, going to happen out there. So that definitely uh, helped. Uh, the only added pressure a little bit was that it was one of our teammates last year and we really kind of wanted to go out and give it our all for her. And But she was really great. She said, you know, let's just go out and have a good game, and that really also helped take any added pressure off of that. So it definitely, um, I think, helped. It was it was just a great game, and it was just curling, you know, so you just kind of go out there and focus on uh, just taking each shot at a time and not think about what uh, happens after the game. Is it fair to say that your final round-robin game may have been one of the key moments for your team during the week? You were 4-2 and two heading into that game, and a win meant a direct spot in the semifinal, while a loss would have sent you to a tiebreaker. Yeah, going into that game, we definitely did not want to have to play a tiebreaker at all. So, it, I mean, it was kind of a bigger game for us. We, I think we're playing I mean, a team called Kitchens, and they're definitely a very strong and uh, competitive team, so... Going into that game, we just tried to stick to our, you know, typical strategy, keeping it clean a little earlier and then going a little bit more aggressive later in the end. Um, And uh, I think actually in that game we ended up having to draw perfectly under a guard and then they had a chance for a run back. Uh, So it was uh, (laughs) was definitely a good game. Now, your team had to dig deep in the last round robin game, stealing points in the final two ends for a 6-4 win. Did that game and the way you played in the final few ends serve to prove to your own team that you could really compete and keep your composure late in an important game such as that one in a national junior championship? We definitely, uh, you know, did need to try to steal. Actually, uh, previously in the week, we had to, I think we were down by a lot, and we had to steal like four times to come back uh, to tie it up in the last end and then steal in the extra end too. So I think it definitely did a show kind of the resiliency of our team and really helped us prepare for that last game because we've been in some of those really tough situations where you really got to go all in for the steal and if you don't make it you don't you know win the game so that definitely really helped us prepare uh for that final game as well against Duberstein. And finally Kate uh so now you're headed to the Worlds I'm just wondering how your team will be preparing and whether you've spoken to players that have been to a junior Worlds to get a sense of what you can expect once you get to Liverpool Nova Scotia. To prepare I mean we've just been trying to practice a lot uh go make sure we're working out but also staying well rested so that none of us are sick or run down when we get there. Um I actually haven't really had the chance to talk to uh too many people specifically about junior nationals. I mean, we know the other boys team. I've actually played with uh, Luke Violet and uh, Ben Richardson on the other team before, um, but haven't really gotten a chance to talk to them too much. I, we have been actually fortunate enough this year um, to go to China, and so we did get some uh, uh, really good international play. So we're hoping that that helps us kind of prepare for <laughs> junior nas- or junior worlds too. I mean, I think probably there's going to be some parts of it that we won't have been able to expect till we get there. So we're definitely looking forward to the chance to go there and play. In the U.S. Junior Men's event, it was Andrew Sapira and his team of Luke Violet, Ben Richardson, and Graham Fenson winning their third straight U.S. Juniors, defeating Team Sluicer in the final. Andrew Sapira also joined from the hack to discuss his team's third title in a row and also to look ahead to the World Juniors, where they have finished second and fourth in their two previous appearances. 
Andrew, typically in junior curling, it's difficult to repeat as a national junior champion because players tend to age out. You've had the same lineup all three years you've won junior nationals. How much of an advantage was that to you this year? It, it's been huge for our team growth over the years. It's been really nice to be able to have the same group of guys the last three years so we don't have to take time creating new team systems and all that kind of stuff. And we can just start the year off on the right foot and uh, at, at times it, it puts us ahead of some of the other teams that are changing lineups. So we know each other well, we know our tendencies well, and it makes it a lot easier to succeed. Your team would have been the overwhelming favorites heading into Junior Nationals. What did your team do to ensure that you did not enter the event overconfident, even perhaps a little complacent? Yeah, for sure. I think that, uh, I mean, I mean, the big thing was that there's a lot of talented teams, and all three of these years, even though we've, you know, played a lot of good games and won a lot of games. There's always been tough teams at the event, and going into this event, we knew there was, you know, a couple teams that could give us a run for our money, and we played a lot of close games that we really had to battle through. Played some, you know, tied games going to the last end. I think we may have played an extra end, so we knew it would never be easy, and it's hard to be conf- or hard to be too overconfident when you have so many talented teams vying for the spot. So. We just knew we had to work hard and play our best to come out on top. In the round, Robin, you defeated Team Sluicer handily, yet in the final, they played you fairly tight for two straight games. Were you surprised that they were able to stay close to you in the final, or was that round-robin game uncharacteristic of Team Sluicer's abilities? That was one of the top teams that we knew we were going to have to play well to beat going into the tournament, and I think the first game wasn't really representative of the quality of that team. I think, you know, they just missed it a shot here or there, and gave us a big end late to give us the win. So we knew that the uh, final would be different than what we had seen from them previously. And, I mean, it, it was a tough game, and you know, we were able to get control early and kind of maintain control. And I think both teams played a little more open, a little less aggressive than the first one, and that's why the score was a little closer. But it, it was a battle, and it really came down to the last couple shots, and We got a couple more breaks, we made a few more shots, and came out. Andrew, you've represented the United States at two World Junior Championships, and you've made the playoffs twice, including a fourth-place finish and a runner-up finish. What will be the keys to get you to the top of that podium this year? I think the experience helps, and every game is is a battle, and we've kind of learned over the last couple years of playing at the World Championships the level of intensity and the level of play we need to show up, and and win games there, and it's it's really a, it's it's a tough event to to put together a full week. And I think we know what it takes, and I think we've learned what it takes, and we're excited to get out there and try to improve our standing. This was their final junior nationals because they're aging out. And the important thing in any curling nation is to have some players in the pipeline, if you will, that can follow in the footsteps of players like you and teams like the one you led to national junior championships the past three seasons. Did you see any players on the ice this season at nationals that gave you a sense that they might possibly do great things at the U.S. juniors in the next year or two? There's a lot of talented players. I mean, uh, first off, my team all... The rest of my team doesn't age out, so they'll be tough and they're not really under the radar, but I think they have a very good chance to four-peat. I'll be cheering them on, but there's teams that did well. The the Strauss team that came in third was relatively young, and they were impressive there, and they haven't had maybe their breakout year, so they played well, and the Cine team may have 
not had a week they were looking for, but they're talented and they still all have eligibility left. So I think uh, with the, the three teams that are going to come back next year, the majority of the three teams put a good race together, and it'll be interesting to watch to see what happens next year. And finally, Andrew, it might be a little early for this question, but with your aging out of juniors, are you planning on sticking with your current team and playing a few World Curling Tour events next season while they continue to participate at the junior level as well? Or will you be looking to perhaps join another team to gain some additional experience at the men's level? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, not entirely sure what I'm doing next year. Uh, if I end up playing with the, the guys I'm playing with right now, I'd be excited. I think uh, some of our success on in men's events this year shows that we have the ability to play with those teams. So if we stick together and play a men's schedule and go for men's nationals and they play juniors, I'd be really excited about the season and what it would bring for us for our future. But, you know, if there's there's an offer out there that is hard to refuse to, you know, move down and play on a top team and gain experience and learn from some of the best in the country, uh, I would jump at that too. So it's, it's a little early to... to think about that too much and it, it's, it's a little hard to think about it it's just up in the air but i'm looking forward to what i'll have going for next year if you're looking to buy some new curling equipment look no further than hardline curling for those who play with the ice pad they know it's the best curling brush whether it's the u.s olympic gold medalist team schuster or women's olympic gold medalist sweden's team hasselberg and their countrymen team adine or how about the top Canadian teams, Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson, and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Now, before we move on to our final guest of the week, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. And our feature guest this week is Catherine Henderson, the CEO of Curling Canada. Catherine joined me for our yearly conversation on some of the bigger issues impacting the sport of curling in Canada. We discuss the Olympic trials format and if any changes can be expected there for 2021. We touch on the format changes that were made to the Briar and Scotties last year, the future of Curling Canada's approach to event broadcasting, and Catherine also discusses what Curling Canada has in place to help protect athletes from the type of abuse and harassment that has been reported in many sports, including in curling, over the the past couple of years around the world. Catherine, following the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang, there were many Canadian curling fans that were wondering what's wrong with Canadian curling, even though Laws and Morris won gold in mixed doubles, Team Cooey played in two medal games, and Team Holman fell one win short of a tiebreaker. Now, I'm sure that Curling Canada took the time to analyze the Olympic results from different perspectives, and now that we're one year removed from the Olympics, I was wondering if you could share what the key takeaways of Team Canada's performance in Pyeongchang were from Curling Canada's perspective. Well, you know, I will start off by also mentioning our wheelchair team won a bronze medal as well at the Paralympics. So I want to make sure that there's kudos to them. Uh, you know, I think what we were seeing there is, is a couple of things, Frank. I, I think first and foremost what we were seeing is that you know, the rest of the world has fallen in love with curling and they want to be as good as we are. And, uh, and people, there's, uh, there's countries from all over the planet that are now um, – have definitely got us in, 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 their, in their targets. What was really interesting, and I think what was a huge change, but if you take a look back from 20, 2014, 
is that Sweden, Scotland, and Canada basically dominated all of the metals that, that were available. Uh, and what you were seeing this time is I, I believe um, there were eight different countries that were represented in the metal standings, um, which is fantastic for the sport of curling, uh, which doesn't feel nearly as good when you're the CEO of Curling Canada. Uh, so one of the things I, you know, a couple things I want to say. First of all, we're very confident that we sent the right teams there. Those are t the two very top teams. Uh, immediately after that, our juniors won both gold medals, and those two teams went on to perform really, really well in a number of things. And at the World Championships, we came up with a gold and a silver for um, our men's, our women's team winning the gold, our men's winning the silver. So, you know, um, to quote uh, one of the one of the writers, the curling apocalypse, Apocalypse did not happen. Uh, we we medaled in 10 of the 12 available um, podiums last year. So, so um, but you know, two very important podiums were missed. And I do want you to know that uh, whether we had won or lost, we go through a very thorough process uh, afterwards to talk about our performance and to figure out what it is that we need to do in order to make sure that we are back in Beijing in 2022 climbing up to the highest level of the podium. So a lot of that analysis has been done, uh, but I will say it's a four-year process, so we we are constantly working on that. And uh, our intent is to go back to Beijing and uh, demonstrate why we're the best curlers in the world. There was much talk following the Olympics that perhaps our teams did not have enough time between the Olympic trials and the start of the Olympics to fully prepare, even though Curling Canada followed a similar schedule to both 2010 and 2014 when Canada brought back three gold medals and a silver medal from the Olympics. Do you anticipate any major changes to the trial schedule in 2021? Sure. So I, I don't think you're going to see any huge changes to the trial schedule um, in uh, you know coming coming up. You know, we have our high-performance people take a look at when athletes are peaking and, you know, when they tend to be able to sustain a really great performance. And so that piece of winning in early December and then being able to move into a um, into Olympic Games or a Paralympic Games situation is something that we look at. And so we feel that timing is, is about right. At the same time, there's probably things that we could be doing for our teams as they're preparing for the trials to help them uh, acclimatized to what an Olympic experience is like, because it is very different than what a world championship experience is like, in which, you know, there's one sport being played, and the whole event is designed around getting the best performance out of athletes, whereas an Olympic Games, it's, it, it's an event that's designed for multiple sports um, with multiple needs, uh, and it's also designed as an Olympic experience, and we probably need to do some work with all of these high potential teams that are moving towards um, trying to compete for that, that place at the Olympic Games to help them understand what that Olympic experience is going to be like, the type of resiliencies that they're going to need, um, and, and the type of preparation that they should be putting in, not just to get themselves to the trials, but the preparation that will come afterwards in order to get into an Olympic or a Paralympic Games. So I would say there's significant work that is being done on the preparation uh, roadmap, but it doesn't really change when we have our trials or not. So I just want to spend a few moments now, Catherine, to talk about uh, the 
television side of the sport of curling from a Curling Canada perspective. An important source of revenue at Curling Canada comes from your current TV deal with TSN, which is up at the end of the 2019-2020 season, I believe. Curling season of champions has been a staple of Canadian sports television for years now, but the sports media landscape has evolved tremendously since you first partnered with TSN in the mid-80s. What would you like the next Curling Canada broadcast deal to look like? Would it resemble what you currently have in place with TSN, or would greater effort be put into making your properties available on different platforms, especially those games and events that are not traditionally covered on broadcast TV? So, you know, first of all, I do want you to know that a number of our platforms have been placed on, on those, uh, or sorry, a lot of our events have been placed on those platforms over the last little while. So while going off with our, you know, our major partner being TSM, we've been working with them uh, and, and trying some different things as we start to approach the end of the current broadcast relationship. And I'll give you some examples. Um, our properties are now available on their streaming platform. Uh, but as well, I don't know if you noticed this weekend, um, we we uh, uh, Facebook streamed um, the round robin portions of the juniors tournament. Uh, what we're really trying to look at is, you know, how do younger people and sort of up and coming curling fans, how do they consume that media? Uh, we, we do have another partner in the CBC, and they do they uh, they stream our uh, our seniors, our college and university, our uh, our wheelchair games. So. You know, a lot of that is getting as much content out into the market as possible. But the other part of that is actually studying what are people doing when presented with curling on different platforms so that both TSN you know, and us and our fans and our athletes and all the stakeholders that are involved in a, in a, in a broadcast deal uh, are able to look to say, how can we bring the most and best content to people where they want to see it and when they want to see it. And that's a, that's a, such a huge question. So rather than sort of picking platforms that, you know, you or I or anyone might think are positive things, what we've really done is, uh, and we've just gone through this recently, is we've gone to the, the viewer and we've done some pretty extensive research with the viewer to say, how do you like to watch curling? And how do you anticipate you're going to watch curling in the future? And we've taken that information, and in our conversation, that's beginning to inform where we need our broadcast strategy to go next. So, an important part of it really is to say is to say to, to to people, how do you how do you watch it now, and how would you like to watch it in the future? And we're getting some really great answers from from them, which I'm just now putting together and sitting down with all of our stakeholders to say, you know, how do we proceed knowing what we know now? I will also say though that in our research, it will it will tell you that television is still king. That's how people really do like to watch curling. Um, and the majority of it is consumed on television. Uh, and it's uh, and it's presented really beautifully now on television. I mean, that whole part of it has really evolved. And, uh, you know, I, I watch I watch what our friends at TSN can do. And just the the, uh, the way they can present a game, it, it almost feels like you can reach out and touch it. And touch it. It's, it's so wonderfully done. So yeah, we've got a lot of conversations and we've got a lot of negotiations in front of us, but I, I feel really confident that everybody's looking at really what our fans want and we're trying to work on ways to deliver that uh, in the future to make sure that everybody's watching as much curling as they can. An increasing number of streaming services such as The Zone are making a push into sports by negotiating broadcast deals with different sports federations. Would Curling Canada entertain an exclusive agreement with a streaming service, even if that meant its major events would no longer be accessible via traditional 
cable providers. As an example, in November of 2017, the Zone acquired Canadian rights to FIBA events, meaning that all Team Canada basketball games at FIBA licensed events are available exclusively on the Zone. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, anyone that watches cable is also dishing out funds, too. So, you know, what, what I would say about it is, first of all, I have done some pretty extensive study um, on sort of over-the-top platforms over the last couple of years, and I've attended a number of events where I, you know, I get to hear about, you know, sort of where that whole streaming service and paywalls and things, really, what is the business model behind that? You know, without, you know, I would never say never about anything, um, but I, I, you know, I, I do go back to the fact that television is is king right now. It's presented quite beautifully, and I will also say it's where our fans tell us they, they like to watch curling. Uh, the majority of our fans tell us, and now it may be because that's where it's available, um, but but really at the end of the day, um, what I need to do is balance off. How do I get curling, who I would say most Canadians, like you know, well over half of Canadians, watch it every year, and a third of themselves call themselves fans. And so, uh, you know, you want to make sure if a third of your country is a fan that I'm not placing it in, in an area that no one can see it. Uh, you know, really our job is to make sure as many people enjoy curling one way or the other. I mean, we're a national sport organization, so that's our job is to have as many people in Canada that want to participate either through playing or watching or fandom, attending events, um, you know, all of those things um, have the opportunity to do so. So, uh, you know, while I would never say that, so, so I guess what I'm saying is this isn't just a money play for us. This is about, this is about making sure the most people are enjoying the most curling most of the time. Uh, and so what I, perhaps would anticipate is that you know, we would evolve our model so that um, those that want to watch it on television have the opportunity to do so, and those that want to watch streaming services for very particular events or particular places uh, have the opportunity to do so. And, um, you know, and maybe there's some events that are at, at this point aren't as interesting for enough people to, to make economic sense to put it on television, but that we provide that niche group of people ways to enjoy the sport, the sport as well, which may well be on a, on a streaming-type service. In an interview he did earlier this season, Mark Kennedy suggested that too much curling expertise was being exported by Canada, with coaches being recruited by other countries to share their knowledge and expertise. Now, coaches going to other countries to share their expertise is nothing new, and it happens in many sports. Canada does it a lot in hockey, as an example. That being said, is it a concern for Curling Canada that so many Canadian coaches are helping to improve the quality of play in other curling countries, especially when these are the teams that Canada often must face at the Worlds and at the Olympic Games, especially when you consider that results at Worlds and at the Olympics are what Canadian agencies such as Own the Podium use in making funding decisions. So my answer, my short answer is yes and no, but I, I, let me explain it a little bit. That's a great, it's a great question. Uh, and it's something I think, you know, we, we, we do spend quite a bit of time thinking. You know, on, on one hand, uh, you know, Canadian curlers have been, uh, you know, the best in the world and, and, uh, and continue to be so, but it gets harder and harder to be the best in the world when other nations around you are becoming significantly better at the sport and the depth of field continues to increase. So on one hand, I would say Canada and its curlers have grown the game all over the world, uh, and that's something Canada should be incredibly proud of. Uh, and, and then, the, you know, the other positive is with our own teams, when they are competing internationally, 
with teams that are better, it does force you to become better and better and better. Uh, so, our, you know, our, our elite teams are now super elite teams, and they're competing, you know, they're competing all over the world against teams that, that you know, they, they lose to uh, at times. Uh, they, you know, fortunately, we win more than we lose, but it's, it's becoming harder to become a champion. That being said, it's way more exciting curling. Um, when you watch a sport, and you know, I don't say this, I'm taking my hat off as the, as the, as the person that, that leads the, uh, the, the curling organization as a sports band. You know, who wants to go to a, you know, and watch a sport on an ongoing basis where you know, there's just one dominant team and they win all the time? I mean, it's not, even, it's not that fun. If it's, so you, know, you do want to see that, that level of competition there. You know, I think you know, from an investment perspective, and Mark is quite right, we spend a lot of our resources developing coaching staff and coaching curling to see a lot of that go out the door. So that, that is always something that you're, you're trying to balance is how much do I want to invest if there's a good chance that it's going to end up overseas working against me. And you, there's, a, there's another point that's taken very well. Um, you know, the Own the Podium organization is an Olympic funder, and it's there put into place legislatively and specifically to produce podium results. And that's what they, that's what they work on. Um, they are constantly looking at evidence and data that says how likely is it that Canada will win a medal at an Olympic or a Paralympic Games, and we will fund accordingly um, based on that likelihood. And so that's where it becomes difficult. Uh, when everyone around you is getting better and better, it, it just changes the odds that you're going to be on the podium. So by exporting um, some of this talent and making everyone better, in some ways we could be risk, you know, creating risk around our funding. At this point, um, you know, we have done so well in so many games over so long and so many world championships. The evidence still points to Canada having very high chances of getting on a podium, but it's, uh, it's probably one of those philosophical and practical questions that we have to deal with every single day, Frank, and it's, it's a tough one. The World Curling Federation launched its World Cup of Curling this season, and truth be told, it hasn't gained that much early traction in Canada. For the benefit of the audience, can you clarify the role that Curling Canada plays, if any, in selecting and sending teams to the Curling World Cup? So first of all, I mean, this is our, this is our World Cup. This is our international federation. And I'll start off by saying that Curling Canada is absolutely behind the success of this. This is something that brings more curling to more people around the globe. And, um, and you know, and it, and we want to help our international federation do very well with this. On the other hand, um, uh, your, your question really is about our role in it. Our role is really to supply teams, but you know, in fact, they do go as you know Team Canada. They're not. This isn't like a cash bail where you're inviting you know, uh, you know sort of a uh, you know, a great team to come. Curling Canada goes through the selection process, and then we sanction the team as as Team Canada, and and that's how they that's how they go. Uh, it's a little bit of a different, you know, it is a little bit, it's not leading to an Olympic Games, it's not a, leading to a world championship, it really is a curling tour, but they do go uh, to compete as Canada versus Sweden versus Scotland, etc. That that sort of thing. You know, it's new, and it's the first time we've done it, and there's always glitches, and there's always things that we're going to learn, but, you know, we've really encouraged our international federation to keep open dialogue with us, and you know we're very experienced in events, and we're certainly willing to help them with our with our thoughts and thinking about how to design and deliver events. Uh, but 
uh, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of see where it goes after this. As a follow-up to that, uh, Catherine, does uh, Curling Canada offset the cost for the athletes that travel to World Cup events to represent Canada? Yeah, no, we have a financial arrangement. I mean, we, we don't uh, completely pay for all of this, but uh, because they're Team Canada, we certainly, we certainly help them out. Last season, Curling Canada introduced the wildcard game to both the Scotties and Briar and split the field at both events into two pools. As with any change in curling, reviews amongst the players, the media, and curling fans were mixed. Curling Canada has undoubtedly reviewed and analyzed how the wildcard game and the new two-pool format worked out. Were you satisfied with the results, and can Canadian curling fans expect both the wildcard game and the two-pool format to remain in place for the foreseeable future? You're right. Uh, we take a look at all of these things all the time and ongoing. There's two things that I that we know about our our uh, Tim Hortons Briar and our Scott Tournament of Hearts, and that is, is that our fans come to see two things. They come to see their provinces and territories compete, and that's really important. And the interprovincial territorial thing is really really important to them. The other part is they come to see the best curlers in the world, uh, and they want to send the best team off to um, to a world championship. And so we, what we are constantly trying to do is to balance off that, you know, the, the, the excellence that is expected at these, at these events uh, with the, um, uh, so the quality of play versus the, the uh, sort of the whole competitive environment. Uh, the wild card team was meant to balance off pools um, because our members had voted in, they wanted direct entry. Uh, and what we found is that we, we, you know, we needed an extra team to compete. The wild card was put in there, uh, and it was suggested and worked on, actually, with our athletes uh, commission, uh, is to, you know, uh, help make sure that you know, your, kind of your depth was there and that you had a lot of high-quality games that were going on. Um, and, then, um, and then it's fun, too. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a neat twist on, you know, sudden death playoff. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty cool thing. And uh, we thought it was a neat way to kickstart both those weekends is, is for that last, that last position. And it was an opportunity for those uh, curling fans to be able to see, you know, maybe some, some surprise teams that, you know, everyone expected to get in, um, perhaps facing off for that, for that last tournament. So from a marketing perspective and from a, kind of a revenue perspective and from an excitement perspective, it was the right thing to do. That being said, you know, the, 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 the two-pool format is different. And there are differing opinions on whether this has been a positive, uh, it's been a positive for the competition or not. I do work with our executive directors from all the provinces and territories, as well as a competitions review committee that has uh, athlete input, it has expertise, high performance input, uh, it has championship services input and, and, and whatnot. And we're actually taking a look at this whole thing right now. Uh, you know, we saw we you know we saw that first set of information that came out of the first year, and just when you make changes like that, a year isn't a trend. Two years starts to become a trend, and so what we want to do, and, and we're actually in the midst of doing this right now, is taking a look at all the effects that this two pool play has had on the competition. You know, on our broadcast audience, on our fan audience, on um, you know people's engagement with the games, on the quality of play that, that that people are looking at, and paying to see. And I think coming out of that, we will begin to work on some recommendations as to maintain the status quo, to change the status quo, to evolve. You know, there's there's a number of there's a number of different outcomes that I think would have come out of this. But I think the curling community will you know and should be able to expect 
a, a point of view on what needs to stay the same and what needs to change uh, coming out of this year's competitions. Over the past year or so, athletes from different sports have been coming forward to share their stories of abuse and intimidation at the hands of coaches and or administrators, including South Korea's Olympic silver medalists in women's curling known as the Garlic Girls. What resources and or programs does Curling Canada have in place to help inform regional associations and local clubs on how to best create a safe environment for young curlers? Yeah, so I'm glad you sort of prefaced this with this. This is one of the most important questions that you're going to ask me. Um, you know, it, it is without a doubt one of the most important things that we do as a national sport organization is not just to set the tone and example, but is to provide the tools and resources both within our organization and to our members and to our members' clubs uh, to make sure that everyone that wants to come and play the sport is coming to a place that is safe, uh, and, and, and that they're going to be well taken care of and that they're absolutely and utterly free from uh, the threat of abuse, harassment, or discrimination. And those are things that I personally and professionally take very seriously. Uh, and, and, and really to that point, I do quite a bit of work with our government and our other sports stakeholders on continuing to move this agenda forward. So just so you know, a uh, number of things have, have happened over the last little while. So first of all, curling is a very safe sport. Uh, and I don't just mean it from a kind of a physical perspective, but uh, there was a lot of forward-thinking um, uh, items. Uh, I would say that that you know ensure that young curlers, it, you know, it's related to our travel policies and it's related to you know sort of where we house people and uh, you know kind of who they're with and 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 and, and how long they're with them. Um, that makes sure that we've got a very, very safe sport. That being said, you know, we, we do all kinds of things. So you can go online, and I would encourage anyone that looks at this is to go online, um, and all of our policies are laid out. Um, they're very public. So I'm just going to go through a couple of them. Um, you know, we do have a number of safe sport policies. Um, we define very distinctly what abuse, harassment, discrimination is, uh, and we describe what happens if, if uh, you feel that you're a victim of one of those things or if you are being accused of one of those things, we have a whistleblower policy. So anyone that has, uh, so there are people within the organization that are not, you know, they're neither uh, high-performance staff or coaches that can hear what your complaint is and confidentially manage it, but we also have a third-party whistleblower uh, policy. So people, if they do feel that there's something that they're upset about and they don't want to directly speak to the organization. We also have like a, an ability to provide an independent investigation. Uh, we provide training for our coaches. Uh, we have all our coaches are given background checks to make sure that um, you know that they're as safe as can be. Uh, I will say that we've introduced with our affiliate of members, which are all the provinces and territories, what we call a safe sport um, framework that we have gone in and identified all the risks to athletes and, and employees. And you know, this isn't just about athletes. It's employees and coaches themselves in all the places. And it runs really the gamut from you know, phys physical you know, concussion protocols to mental health to the things that we've just talked about. And we've identified what all of those priorities. And as a group, we've been working through these over the last little while to make sure that our policies, our processes, our procedures, our disciplining, and, and kind of the resources that we have and the oversight that we have are all um, best in class. And, uh, you know, I would submit, um, and we, we did have a, a person that 
um, audited everything from a third-party expertise, and uh, I would call curling a best-in-class organization, you know, as it pertains to all the things we've done. But additionally, we provide all of that to our members and to our members' clubs, and uh, we encourage them without charge or without attribution to adopt all of these things because they are um, they're, they're, uh, they're things that we take really, uh, really, really seriously, and they're very important to us. Uh, our sport has a wonderful reputation, and we want to keep it that way. I think it's fair to say that the sport of curling is thriving. The number of events available to elite curlers continues to grow, and the sport keeps expanding into different countries around the world. Now, despite all this international growth and despite the increased exposure that the world's top players and teams, many of them Canadian, are receiving on different media platforms, curling clubs throughout the country continue to struggle with closures happening on a yearly basis, including some highly publicized closures in the Toronto area over the past year or so. I've asked you a variation of this question each time I've interviewed you, and I know there are strategies in place to try and get more Canadians to try the sport and to become club members. Is Curling Canada starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel as a result of your marketing efforts and development programs, or does it remain an uphill battle in a world where people have so many recreation options available to them every day of the week? Okay, so we'll start off at the end of your question. It's always an uphill battle. If it was easy, it probably wouldn't be as much fun as I have, but uh, first of all, I, I do want you to know curling, I would say kind of writ large curling, is growing in Canada right now. And we're one of the few sports that actually is showing a small amount of growth. And I believe it's very much due to the efforts of our, of our members, our clubs, and ourselves in making the sport as accessible and as open and as nearby and as marketing in, in all different uh, interesting ways. So I'm just going to go through a, just a couple of things that we've provided over the last couple of years for our clubs. I'll make a comment about about kind of club curling, and uh, and then you know I'm always open for suggestions. But I'll start off with you know we we put a number of resources in both national and hyper local marketing um, to help people not just appreciate what the sport is and does, but you know how to get to a local curling club. Um, and we continue to provide and expand and evolve our schools programs to make sure that not only are kids enjoying the sport on the gym floor, but there's actually a, a, a trackable methodology to actually move them onto the ice and we're starting to be able to see some very good results with moving kids from you know a, a rocks and rings scenario right on to right onto the ice and seeing them join junior leagues and in places where we've implemented this the junior leagues are full so so we know we know that it works we've, we've put together a number of initiatives over the last couple of years to um, to to target People who may have grown up in the country without snow or ice to tell them and to show them like what all you know what all fun is about and why they should come out and curl, and those things have been very successful. They tend to be quite targeted because um, you know you usually will get a group of people um, that will settle in around a certain area, and, and you know that's what we try to do is, is get them focused on um, getting over to a, to a local club. So and we've seen we've seen some good success there. Uh, our our uh, we have a long term athlete development. Um, a program that has been uh, worked on over the last couple of years, and it's it's really it's kind of a cradle to grave program, recognizing that 99% of curlers are going to be kind of curler for life rather than you know elite curlers, and we've done we've done quite a bit of work to keep people engaged with the sport for longer. So it's everything from you know how we develop very young people and try and develop their skills over time to expanding you know uh, um, you know marketing around things like stick curling. I would say, you know, the business of curling is it's a tough business, and we have a really great program. This year in June, we'll be running a kind of a global symposium 
uh, around that. It would be probably highly, you know, Canada-centric, but um, but at the same time, it will be um, a fantastic program for any club that wants to attend to it. Uh, we have provided advocacy tools and um, abilities for our club to access infrastructure funds from, uh, and, and we, we, we did quite a bit of work to make sure that curling, curling centers were qualified for, for those funds. And as well, you may have heard me introduce the capital assistance program, which will help clubs that need to make um, changes in their club that makes it more marketable and more sellable. Uh, so, you know, if they want to put in um, a ramp for older people or if they want to create an area where kids can play because they're really trying to, to target uh, young families, um, you know, we, we do provide some, some economic assistance there. So all of these things together really, I think, add up to the fact that, you know, clubs are really the bread and the butter and it's where most of the curling happens in Canada. And it's really it's part of our remit and our mandate to make sure that those clubs are healthy and thriving. Um, I happen to be a member of one of those clubs that closed <laughs> this year, so you know I certainly feel the disappointment of a curler that uh, has not been able, you know, that 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 that, that, that their club closed. It's a it's a sad day when it happens. Uh, but we are doing everything possible to keep as many clubs open, healthy, thriving, and we're actually seeing some really good results. The clubs that are doing well are doing really well. I mean, they're 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 over they're oversubscribed. You've been CEO of Curling Canada for three years now, and you've experienced all the major events on both the Canadian and international curling calendars. What has surprised you the most about the sport and the place it holds on Canada's sports landscape? You know, what, what is really, I mean, surprised and delighted me was, although it is a sport that's played by a couple million people a year, it's watched by you know, tens and tens and tens of millions of people a year, you know, and globally, like just, just unbelievable amounts. Um, you know, it's a big sport. It really is a big sport. It, what, what surprised and delighted me is the kind of the intimacy and the friendships that that that, that you see. And, and you know, funnily enough, even myself, I mean, people I grew up with, and people that lived on my street, and people that I, you know, I played with when I was younger, are still really close friends. And I, you know, I will be in Scotland and I'll run into them, or I'll be, you know, at the Continental Cup and I run into them, and it just. Uh, the community is huge, but it's really small, and and it's it's really wonderful. I mean, these people really, really care about one another. And probably part of it has to do with it's part of our national identity. I mean, we we sort of identify as a, as a curling nation, um, and you know, but it's so much part of our lives. It's not like a sport where you kind of just you pop into, you know. I, I don't want to name another sport right now. I certainly don't want to denigrate another sport. But you know, there are sports that you just kind of go and do, and then you come home and you don't really think about it afterwards. And curling is such a way of life that it's created this incredible community of people that really look out for one another and they really care about one another. And uh, and they have this kind of healthy recognition as God, we're in this for 60 years together. Like, we better get along. So well, that, that's been uh, something I've really enjoyed about about the sport. And finally, Catherine, I know you've been playing in the curling league for a few years now, although I'm not sure how many games you got in this year with the club closure you just mentioned. But how soon can we expect to see you at the Travelers Championship as a player? <laughs> well, I've been to that competition, and I think I've got a little bit of a road ahead of me. Uh, you know, despite having some of the best people in the world around me that can give me tips, I just don't seem to have that natural knack to get myself there. But it's been one of the more enjoyable tournaments that I've attended, I will say. So I will say I'll be there next year. 
I'm not sure you, I, I could ever say I was going to be there as a player, but it certainly has been a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and, and I, I, I live in the maxim that hope springs eternal. So let's, let's leave it at that. And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for week 24 of the 2018-2019 curling season. A big thank you to all of our guests for this week, and thank you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack. <laughs>